Yes, yes. Welcome once again, good people. You are now listening to the A to Knee podcast. I am your host, Knee. Um, and today, I believe I have a pretty interesting episode for you. I'm joined by Babs, someone you would have heard on Three Shots of Tequila, on the Blacklisted podcast. He's just a bit of a character, someone that's lived a very, very colourful life, someone that has, you know, a lot of interesting stories and someone that, you know, you kind of, when he speaks, you want to listen. He's a very gifted speaker. So without further ado, I'll introduce Babs. Um, thanks for that, Nee. That's a really nice introduction. <laughs> so yeah, um, Sadiq, also known as Babs, um, like Nee said, um, you might have heard me on Free Shots of Tequila, Blacklisted podcasts and other platforms. So yeah, excited to be a guest on this podcast. Okay, okay. So, can we get like an overview of your life, like from the very beginning? So, you yeah. know, from where you were born to, you know, everything. Okay. Um, I was born 1983, so I'm an old man, um, in Stockholm. My parents were immigrants from Nigeria. They came here to study the early 80s. Um, they're both from aristocratic families. So they were well matched on paper. So um, mum had a miscarriage the year year before me. Well, it wasn't even a miscarriage. It was a stillborn. So when I was born, um, it was to a lot of fanfare. I was also the first born son after the matriarch of my, the patriarch on my dad's side died. So there was a lot of anticipation around my birth and happiness and jubilation and all, all of that. Um, my first memories growing up, sad to say, but it was domestic violence. Um, my dad was a very, very violent and imposing man. So, um, I remember him beating up my mum. Um, she used to wear sunglasses quite often because she would have black eyes. Um, I remember having to take off his shoes when he come home from work. It was a small flat. It was a small apartment. Um, I was joined by my siblings, Ollie and Lola. They came two years apart. My younger sister, Lola, was um, placed in foster care um, for a little while. And then my parents split when I was six. Um, so when they split, it was a bit, um, it was a bit, um, of turmoil for me because I had to move quite a lot. Yeah, so, um, earliest childhood memory was us being in Stockwell, um, Fallowden House. It was a small house, um. A flat actually it wasn't a house, it was a two bedroom flat. And um, I remember that my dad beating up my mum. That was the earliest. Well, that's I don't know if that's my brain um, telling me it's my earliest memory, but it's my most vivid memory of my childhood. Um, there was times where I had to spend the night 
at a neighbour's house. We lived opposite an Irish family, so there was many nights where I would have to spend the night there while my dad would get kicked out of the house or he would get arrested. So at that young age, um, looking back, I used to have like panic attacks. I remember just randomly thinking I'm seeing things and whatnot. I was young, you know, about four. Um, age of six, by now, I've got two younger sisters. Um, one's in foster care, the younger one's in foster care. She got farmed out. Um, it was kind of hard for my mum to look after all this and whatnot. So my dad, my mum kicked him out and we left. We left, we went to live in various different places. So it was quite traumatic because um, I went to different primary schools. I went to four different primary schools before the age of seven. So I didn't really get a chance to create long-lasting friendships, you know, from a young age. I was quite shy anyway. And I remember just being in different primary schools and different playgrounds and not understanding where I was and what I was doing and why we're living in different houses and whatnot. Do you know what I mean? Um, Sorry to pause you, yeah. but can we quickly go back to something that you said? So you said your sister was farmed. Do you mean that literally in terms of she was one of the children that was farmed in the 80s? Or Yeah, yeah. Okay, so she was yeah. raised by a white family. She was raised by a white family, Mummy Jill in Essex in Essex so yeah do you mind if we go into that a little bit like is is it okay to talk about that or yeah yeah of course of course of course because the whole farming thing is it, it, quite interesting to me because I feel like it's almost this very unspoken part of black British history yeah um you know I'd pretty much never heard of it until recently yeah until after the film pretty much and that's mad yeah um you know I've we've had enough black history months and not once has anyone mentioned this thing, and it was this very prevalent thing in our community. So, yeah, yeah. you know, something happened to um, pretty famous people as well, like the Fashanu brothers. One of them eventually killed themselves. I was speaking to a friend of mine who had an uncle that went through that situation, and he actually ended up um, committing suicide because of it. Wow, wow. I guess I'm, what I would like to ask is, yeah. did you notice um, anything about your sister in terms of, yeah. do you think it shaped her? Do you think it's influenced her character? No, no. Um, she she came home just before she was five, and um, if anything, she it was a she was she was she was raised in a loving environment. That's for sure. You know, there was um, there was about four or five other black children there, um, and the way when she came to live with us for the first time, finally, I just remember her being very happy. You know, she was very happy and um, she just, there was a few quirks, you know, but it weren't nothing mad. It was just what she used to call trousers. She used to call it furfies or something silly like that. So, <laughs> but I, I don't remember. Yeah, it was something strange, but I don't remember anything, any adverse um, um, trauma from that situation. You know what I mean? She was quite happy. Maybe later on, she... I feel like she's had some sort of resentment towards my mum, but that's due to some other issues. I don't think it's due to that particular issue. And I think, to be honest, it kind of was a protection from her because she had a different perspective 
on my dad than me and my other sister. Do you know what I mean? So she was allowed to um, have a better child um, relationship with him growing up oh, over okay, the years. Okay, okay. You know? Yeah. Fair. So she's probably the closest to him because she didn't witness what me and my other sister witnessed. But um, by the time she came home, we were living in Mightsville Estate, which is um, in Brixton, Brixton North. Um, so that was our first proper home because we were living in B&Bs and um, different aunties' houses and stuff like that. You know, I remember we lived in a B&B in Streatham and my mum was taking me and my sister to two different primary schools. So I just remember the cold mornings, waking up early, <laughs> just, you know, that slug, just that, you know, looking back, I don't know how my mum was doing it, you know, to, to, to take two different children to two different primary schools in Brixton and we were living in Streatham. So we got settled in Mightsford Estate, you know, it was the first, I won't say the first time living on an estate, because the first house was a, a, the first flat was an estate, but this was more, you know, when you start to integrate with the community, you know, mm-hmm. neighbors looking out the window, seeing fascinating characters, <laughs> you know, it was the hood, you know what I mean? It was like, like, wow, this is, this is crazy, but exciting at the same time, you know, being like seven, eight years old and seeing all these, um, charismatic people up and down so and I guess this is kind of why I wanted to have you on my pod because our lives are essentially I guess opposites like I've had a very sheltered upbringing on the edge of southwest London uh, in Morden two-parent household okay okay yeah so like um estate living is something I'm not familiar with at all it was only my cousin like when I visited my cousins I'd see what it was like to live on an estate everyone's got one of them cousins (laughs) so I guess I want to kind of get your take on how you perceive the black British community to be. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had conversations with of different people so far. My dad's spoken to me about how it was in the 60s when he came here. And he kind of alluded to the fact that there was like more of a dispersed kind of community where, you know, Ghanaians were still Ghanaians, Nigerians with Nigerians, yeah. West Indians yeah. with West Indians. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of sort of wondering, you you having lived here at, um, at a later stage and also in that um, in that. Um, estate environment did you sort of see a, a more tight-knit stronger black british community uh, no it wasn't a, it was it was more a caribbean community and as a nigerian we were on the fringes of it if that made sense do you know what i mean um i remember my mum having arguments with people from the estate and i couldn't understand why they were talking to my mum like that do you know what i mean um just bad attitude telling her to shut up, things like that. And, you know, when you're like seven, eight, you can't really say anything, you know what I mean? So in your opinion, what was the sort of cause behind this friction? Was it because she was a Nigerian immigrant? Were there biases on both sides, stereotypes from both sides? Like, what do you think? It was it was a bit of both. Um, my mum probably um, not, probably breaking some unspoken social cues and um, not knowing the lay of the land and also the fact that she is different. You know, she was an immigrant um, from Nigeria, so she's not, she wasn't familiar with um, Jamaican culture or Jamaican people. And she even told me herself that like, she was very scared of them when she first came. 
you know, she was she would have avoided interacting with them because she was quite um, intimidated by them. So, um, yeah, sorry, go on. That's something my dad touched on a bit in his episode, like this idea that they were very violent by nature or just quick to anger or whatever. And it's just a shame, in my opinion, that we are so, you know, prone to taking in these stereotypes of each other without really knowing each other very well. And I kind of want to speak to a Jamaican elder to get it from the other side, but I'm having trouble finding someone to speak to. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think my mum would have changed her mind by now because I think due to my interactions with them growing up, she's seen another side and she's also seen that um, Africans sometimes have a rose-tinted view of Africa and Africans. And, you know, when I, when she started to see the things that I was doing and some of my peers who weren't Jamaican, she started to realise that, you know, it's, it's deeper than just stereotyping a culture. And she's also seen a lot of Jamaicans that are very conservative in their manners and you know old-fashioned and you know she started to recognize that but I think her initial um, uh, thoughts were totally not aligned with how she feels about them now. That's good to hear so um, could you now go into talking about your school life Um, maybe the ethnic makeups of your friendship groups um, your school at different times like I'm kind of interested to sort of hear what the uh okay. yeah who were you around when you were yeah. really really young yeah yeah okay so my, my 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 primary school that i actually settled down in um that was my fourth primary school it was in the middle of an estate so it was a very poor um you, you have to actually see it to believe it because when i tell people about my primary school i feel like they probably think i'm exaggerating and it's sometimes, you know, it's far from an exaggeration. It was a primary school in the middle of an estate. Um, I had porter cabins for classrooms. Um, it was, there was hardly any white people throughout all my years that I was there. When I, was, I started there year three. When I left, there had only been one white girl in my class since when I was in year three to, to year six. By the time I got to year six, there was only four girls left in my year. Um, most parents had taken their children out of the school by then. Um, yeah, it was just everyone been prison in that class. You know, we all came from dysfunctional families, um, but it was it was you know one of the best time periods of my my life. Um, it was a mix of black ethnicities, so majority Jamaican sprinkled with a couple Nigerians and Ghanaians but majority was Jamaican and growing up in Mitesford I was you know in very close proximity to Jamaican so um, I would say that I was you know um, on the fringes of their culture you know my secondary school was in Peckham St Thomas the Apostle now most of my family my mum's family live in Peckham so I spent a lot of my childhood in Peckham on the weekends I was in Peckham holidays I was in Peckham so I went to school in Peckham Um, the school was predominantly black it was like probably like a 50-50 black African black Jamaican on the black side and you know a lot of whites, but I would say about 70% black, 30% white. 
Um, so was it was predominantly Jamaicans, and there were no other West Indian groups, just just Jamaicans. No, no, no. You get like a you get like a Saint Lucian here and there, or a Bayesian here and there, but majority were from Jamaica. Majority were. Yeah, this sounds completely different to my school experience. Um, I my primary yeah. school was in um in Sutton, so this is like you know past London. This is the first town in Surrey. Yeah. And um, yeah, there weren't really many black folk. Yeah. Um, I think yeah, I was one of four in primary school. Oh shit. And yeah, it was it was kind of like an isolating experience, and then secondary school rolls around, and I go to a school in Banstead. Yeah. And again, not too too many black people. Um, definitely more than in my primary school, but not many. Um. But when yeah. I look back on it, it was strange because not many kids actually came from the area itself. Okay. Most kids were coming from Tootin, or at least the black kids. Yeah. Tootin, yeah, yeah. Mitcham, Roundshaw. Like people coming from Quay, like like nowhere near Banstead, but they were coming to the school. Even like Fortin Heath. Oh. Um, I think a lot of the kids in like year 11 when I got there in year 7 were yeah. like associated with Gypset. So yeah, it was it was a very interesting experience. So when I hear stories like yours of going to like a majority black school, yeah, um, I kind of get jealous almost <laughs> because yeah, that was yeah. that was not my experience at all. Like when I went to sixth form, it was literally just me. I was the only only wow. black kid. Wow. Um, well, there was one other, but um, the first week of sixth form, I was the only black kid. On top of that, the school was tiny. Like sixth form, be before people in a class, so I proper stuck out. And yeah, it was peak. <laughs> yeah, there must have been because because I was I, I didn't realize how good I had it at the time. You know, I I was really around black people. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I I don't I didn't know any white people apart from a few white boys in secondary school. But that was my first interaction that I remember with white boys my age properly. You know, I was always surrounded by black people, so it was it was nice because there weren't no sort of um, weirdness. Do you know what I mean? I think the I didn't. I didn't realize. I think you you realize like microaggressions from like teachers, you know, in secondary school, and they're like, "Move along, lads," when you're just congregating, and you're like, "Why did they tell us to move when they don't tell the white boys to move?" But apart from that, yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't really feel oppressed because you're black because everyone's black. Do you know what I mean? You you know about police coming around, but. It's almost like a game, do you know what I mean? You just hear boy them and everyone runs. So it was being black it was nice, but it's funny because there was another um issue. So being Nigerian and surrounded by Jamaicans, I didn't relate much to Nigerian culture. Do you know what I mean? So I was and and a lot of Nigerians won't like what I've got to say here, but a lot of Nigerians that were around me or that I grew up with were quite docile and that used to piss me off because I could tell they're, they're quite strong physically or but I always sensed that they're holding back or they were quite fearful and I've never liked people that show fear do you know what I mean so it used to irritate me when I'm seeing like six foot plus Nigerians getting slapped by the skinniest smallest Jamaican boy and you're thinking why are you so shook because I was never like that do you know what I mean I was someone that was very quick to fight so I never had that fear 
of Jamaicans or you know what I mean so I didn't really relate to and obviously a lot the, a lot of Nigerians weren't trying to be bad they weren't involved in that type of uh, mentality at a young age so I just didn't have a lot in common with them it's really interesting to hear you say this because it just goes to show the more things change the more they say the same because like even in my school um, yeah. I feel like there was the same kind of idea of I think there was a general idea of you couldn't try a black boy yeah. uh, particularly if he looked a certain way uh, if if he was hench, if he was if he looked athletic, if he was dark skinned, whatever, whatever, like there was a there was a yeah. idea that you couldn't try a black boy. But yeah. I would definitely say there was like a, a a hint of a difference based on ethnicity. So like I remember my my brethren Daniel, like he come to he come to our school in in uh, beginning of year ten, um, after doing a year in in Nigerian school. Okay. So he just come back. Yeah. Um, Daniel was hench, quick. Yeah. Like and you could tell from like just he was like he probably like five ten in when we was in years when he was in year eleven, um, and even though like he fitted the criteria in terms of the black boy that you wouldn't try in terms of try to start a fight with, the I, I remember the white guys were always trying to get onto man, always trying to fight, always trying to stir with him, always trying to fight, always trying to rush him, and it was like it was it was interesting to see because there was another boy, uh, another friend of mine called Connie, who was pretty much the same stature, maybe a little bit hencher, um. Uh, but he was from Jamaica, innit? And there was this thing of where they would never try Connie, ever, 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 never in their life would they try it. And it was just really interesting to sort of like see that. So hearing you say that, and we've gone to school in in two different generations, um, like it's actually it's, it's interesting to hear you say that. It's probably it's actually very very interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people can kind of relate to it as well. Um, but obviously now it's a, it's a total, totally different um, dynamic. Secondary school, there was, there, I won't say there was a lot of Nigerians that were bad. There was a couple, but there were other ethnics that were bad apart from Jamaicans as well. So yeah, secondary school was um, just like a continuation of primary school for me. Um, I was just naughty, you know, if, if truth be told, I was... I was I was a, I was naturally gifted. Oh no! To, to be honest, I would, let me not say naturally gifted because that's a dear of um, my people a disservice. I was well read as a kid. I loved books, and the more I read, the more my imagination grew, and the more general knowledge I um, acquired. And I thought that was just a normal thing. Do you know what I mean? But, you know, when you go to a school and people literally can't read or write, you're like, rah, this is not normal. Do you know what I mean? Like, most, most people are not smart in that demographic. So, But apart from the fact that I knew what I was being taught majority of the time, I was very disruptive, you know. I liked to fight. That was my thing. Um, yes, yeah, so secondary school. I got I got suspended the first week of school. <laughs> no, Bab, surely not the first week. Yeah, the first week, the first week. But do you know what, Nee? This 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 is a very pivotal moment in my life because you know when you look at your life, you look at key moments that if it didn't happen, it would have changed the trajectory of your whole life. Do you know what I mean? This incident that happened was. It was funny because I actually didn't want to fight. I went to I went to secondary school with the full intention 
of behaving myself. Um, my mum and my auntie, my auntie used to live with me. That's another thing. Growing up in my house, it was never just me and my mum and my sisters. There was always someone else, <laughs> like an auntie or a cousin. Someone was always staying at our house, which was frustrating. But um, my mum and my auntie sat me down and they gave me that like, one of them long lectures. It was from love. It wasn't like a hard lecture, but it was just long. And they told me, like, please, you're going to big boy school, behave yourself, all of that. And I generally was like, yes, mummy. Yeah, I'm going to be good. You know, like that. I, I really made the intention to be good. So the first week of school, you know, you could already see me. You could see people, you know, you see groups forming, groups forming, like you could see who's popular already and, um, you know, you get them primary schools that majority go to the same secondary school. So there was like a primary school that was just up the road. So majority of my year came from that school. It's like a sister school. So they already had their hierarchy already set up. And the older years were familiar with majority of them coming through. So there was already clicked up. And I'm coming from Brixton where there was only like, two other people from Brixton one came from my school I was just being quiet I'm not I'm not interested in no um, nothing on the Friday I'm walking through the corridor and this guy who he was the pop the most popular from that new school and you know he was already cocky thought it was a bit bad he's bounced into me and I just I didn't take nothing of it you know what I mean we're walking through the corridor people bounce into each other but then he's he's grabbed me and he's like did you bounce me did you bounce me and I'm like no I didn't bounce you I didn't you know what I mean I, I had no ego I just said I didn't bounce you and he's he's squared up to me and he's put his head on my head like and push I'm walking forward like pushing me backwards and it's funny because the guy that went to my school was already part of his little crew and he said to him, oh, hey, Babs is strong, you know. <laughs> uh, be careful. But obviously, I look like a neek, innit? You, if you looked at me, I was quite small. I'd, you would never think what kind of fury was inside me. Uh, you know, I took the bad up. Badded me up. I just, I took it. Like, All right, whatever. I'm not trying to get in trouble. I'm a, I'm a dickhead now, innit? I'm a dickhead in this new school. Let me just hold it. Got to school and every, you know, everyone got to class. And everyone's like telling me about this guy. And like, he's strong. He done this and he done that. And it was like some tells of the crypt story. So after school, I'm trying to go home. But everyone's walking with me to the left. I'm trying to go to the right. But I'm being led like a sacrificial lamb. I'm telling you, I'm being led... No, that's how I felt, bro. Like, I was being led to the park, bro. They're walking with me to the park. And I'm thinking, shit, what is going on? Like, why well, can't... I'm trying to go home. <laughs> I'm trying to go home. A man of March should be, like, some Roman legion. Like, do, do, do. So, anyway, we get to the park. And this guy is there. He's taken off his tie. And he's, like, kind of, like bouncing his shoulders and I'm thinking you don't even know oh you know like <laughs> I was just thinking to myself like I don't even want to do this to you but you're not touching me you're not touching me so anyway he's come over I've slipped the bang and then boom 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 
quick combination. He's run. I'm chasing him. I sweeped him, got on top of him. And then I literally had my fist over his face. Like to say, if I, like, do you want me to carry on? It was like that type of thing where I didn't want to fight him. I didn't want to beat him up. But I could fight. So it was it was second it was like second nature to me to, to be able to beat people up. So anyway, um Monday comes, he's coming with his mum and dad, he's got a black eye, and then I get suspended. Now um when I came back from the suspension, I'm already notorious now because I've just beaten up the, the king of that new old school, even though obviously we're kids in it, but these are big things when you're 11 years old. So um, what happened now? The teachers already blacklisted me. My, my form tutor was horrified. She was like, you just embarrassed me. It's your first week and you're getting suspended. What kind of start is this? You know, all of that nonsense. And then everyone was just scared. If I sneezed, people were flinching. And I think what happened was that I just reverted back to my primary school self because I was a bully in primary school. So I literally just reverted back to my old self and I just had a reign of terror till I left the school. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was it was like crazy. I just I was it was horrible. And you say bye. So Babs, I'm wondering, if you had all this strength, this energy, like from young, this physical prowess, was no one telling you, yo, you could play rugby, you could do shot put? Um, powerlifting, like, was no one trying to put that energy into something positive for you at the time? Couple times, couple times. One, one of my cousins, he um, he used to play for England. He used to play for Erif Rugby Club, and then he um, used to play for England. I think it was like under 15s or whatever. And he used to tell me because I was, I was, he's strong, but I was stronger. And he used to be like, "You've got all the attributes," but I never had no one to kind of guide me in terms of sports. You know, I asked my dad once about boxing and he said boxing is for, for losers and that was that. But um, physically, I don't I don't understand why I was... I think it's from anger. I always attribute my strength to anger because it wasn't normal. And my, my, phys- my physical self, you would look at me and not you wouldn't know that I was extremely strong for my age. Do you know what I mean? And it's carried me through to majority of my life. I've always been um, like elite level strength without tooting my own horn. But I always tell people, I don't think it was genetics. I think it just came from a place where I just had some sort of uncontrollable rage and anger and a desire to um, be strong. Do you know what I mean? So I think it was mostly mental. Okay, so maybe let's switch gears a little bit. Can you maybe take me through your first um, encounters with police or like just your first time sort of seeing how Britain resented black people and how that sort of manifested when you were young? Um, yeah, I can remember police. My first police situation. Um, I've never spoken about this publicly and I've actually looked into the situation. Oh, I've tried to look into the situation to see if um, I could do something about it because I, I think it left a um, lasting impression on me that I shouldn't have. I don't know if it was when I was 10 or 9 and me and an older family member, an auntie, 
we were, me and my sisters and her, were shopping in Croydon. And I remember it was Orders, a shop called Orders at the time. And um, my auntie, she, she did something she wasn't supposed to do. She stole, she stole a Nintendo because I was asking her for it. Because she was supposed to get me some Super Nintendo games. And she couldn't afford the proper one. So she had to get one from the bargain bin. And it was some shit game. So I was a bit, I was still, I was sulking. And then she, we walked into Elders. And um, I said, get me this Nintendo. So it was not even a Super Nintendo. It was just a Nintendo. So she picked it up. But I didn't know that she actually stole it. She put it under her um, clothes or whatever she was holding. So we got, she got arrested. She got taken by um, store security, and um, they called the police, and they took us. So what happened is that they didn't want to separate, or we didn't want to be separated from her, and we ended up in the cell with Marty, and we were children. And I remember that um, one of the officers, a woman, was shouting at her, calling her evil you're evil you're evil and i couldn't understand what what was going on do you know what i mean like it was scary so i i had already seen the inside of a police station and cell before my friends i already knew how the um the mattress looked how the the windows looked and everything can i remember me and my sisters being, we were crying, we were crying, and it's it's, it's a dark it's a dark memory because I don't think we've we think I think we've only discussed it once since then like collectively, and then a few years back when um I was on trial for a gun charge, I remember just talking to my solicitor about it and I was just like no nah, that's effed up like what can I do about this do you know what I mean like. What can I do about this? Can I get some sort of compensation? Because that ain't a normal thing. Do you know what I mean? I'm I'm sure they broke they broke rules and regulations, but then I felt awkward about bringing it up to Marty. Like I didn't want to because she's um she's like a reformed per. I wouldn't even say she's reformed because she was never a bad person. Do you know what I mean? She's not she's not a thief. She was never like someone like that. It's just that situation probably she was under pressure and felt like she wanted to please us so i didn't want to embarrass her and say look are you do you remember this night in 92 do you know what i mean like do you remember that situation i don't want to bring it up but yeah it was a it was so i don't know if it, so i think looking back that i don't think they would have done that to a white family oh definitely I mean? not i don't think yeah i don't think they would have done that to a white family um Apart from that, because it was I grew up in Brixton, so I didn't really encounter other communities. I encountered other people, but not communities as a whole. That that came very late in my life, where um, I think once I went to Hayes when I was a, a youth, I went to Hayes and I got into a fight with some local white boys. Do you know what I mean? And I beat one up. That was and they were racist and that was it I didn't have no major racial incidents growing up you know what I mean probably prison yeah 
the first time in prison was an eye-opener for me in terms of racial dynamics, yeah. Okay, if we can stick here for a second. Yeah, yeah. Would you mind describing the first time you went to prison? Or like, what happened? All right, so um, I've, I've, I've left school at 15. Um, I've tried to go to college. I went to college, actually. I won't say I tried. I went to college. Um, I got kicked out of my first college. Um, I just couldn't relate to no one. You know what I mean? I was in a dark place at the time. You know, I was, I was fully involved in the streets now. And um, I felt like I was too above going to college. Do you know what I mean? I felt like everyone, I couldn't relate to these nerds who were trying to do good for themselves. So I, I brought some dark energy there. And I just literally had an argument with one of my teachers. And I just, that was it for me. Um, the next year I went college again, but this time I had a different experience because it was a, it was one of them colleges where it, everything's relaxed and a lot of my friends were there, so it was more like a youth club. So they kicked me out of there as well, um, <laughs> but I, I still was going there. You know, there was there where like they kicked me out, and I was still finding my way to go back because it was fun. Do you know what I mean? And um, during that period, I started um, dabbling in crack. So I was already smoking weed. Now I'm smoking crack secretly um, away from majority of my friends. So it was like three of us. We kind of formed a, like a splinter group of crack smokers. You know what I mean? Like, like it was just our little... Was it a big thing at the time? Because I feel like there's always this thing of where there's a push to see this image that black people don't do hard drugs. Um, we're always in the narrative of selling drugs, but in terms of taking them, it's like, nah, all we do is weed. Um, but when I hear about like past generations escapades, that doesn't sound like it's the truth. And especially now that so much black music is about taking drugs or being addicted to drugs, I guess from your perspective, like how prevalent were these drugs in the community? They do drugs, but what if they stick with their, their drug of choice, which was weed and then the higher level was crack so we didn't do pills we didn't obviously later on it got to pills like molly and that but growing up it was weed or crack no one took heroin no one took ketamine no one took pills no one took those are white man drugs do you know what i mean so with crack crack was romanticized by the generation above me so those that were like three four five years older than me they were like the trailblazers when it came to crack so they they were the ones that were doing the steaming the bank robberies post office robberies they were proficient at it very very proficient the generation above me now as a result of what they were doing, the robberies, a lot of the time they would have a lot of disposable money and they will smoke crack. But one thing about crack, if you've got enough to maintain it, you're all right. Do you know what I mean? You can you can be a functional crack smoker, if that makes sense. So they romanticised it and we're with the bad boy image, you know, especially the olders from Peckham and Brixton, 
they had a certain thing about them and the way they used to speak about it, they had no shame in it. In a lot of them, do you know what I mean? It wasn't like it was taboo, but they, the some of them wore it on their sleeve, which made it, it made them even more respected and fearsome in our eyes. Do you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, we, are, my generation, tended to look down on it. So we, because we started to see the effects of crack, you know, the the crackheads on the streets and whatever and we started to see a few of the older lot fall off they couldn't maintain so you see them and you're like he's a crackhead and you just don't want to be that so at 15 um one of my friends was shot in for one of my old my friend's older brother so he was the first of us to start selling drugs apart from weed that we would played around with selling weed but he was the first to be a guy in country for like a few days here and there and he had a bit of disposable income so I remember one day we're just um, in the flats where we used to smoke weed and then we were just like messing around and then he brought out he brought out like a rock and he was like yeah just chatting shit but we ended up smoking it and you know I was fearful at first because I was thinking I'm going to die this is crack I can't be smoking this but I just the part of me wanted to try it as well to see what the fuss is about I smoked it and I liked it I liked it and I was like wow this is nice this it it didn't even feel as harsh as weed because weed got like a harshness to it you know what I mean this was like smooth I wasn't expecting it to be so smooth and I liked the taste, but I was also very conscious that I liked it. So I said to myself, "Never ever do this again. If you do this again, you're gonna you're gonna carry on because you like you you don't you could tell you like something. It's just like no, I'm not doing this. And then um, yeah, I think it was 16, 17. I know it was over a year because it was constantly on my mind. Like I wanted to do it again, but I didn't have the avenue to do it again. Do you know what I mean? But by chance, um, me and my friend, we came across, I think it was like about a quarter, and we just smoked it. We smoked it, and then sometimes we'll be in a room, and he would give me that look. And I, I know what he's about, what he's thinking, and we'll just literally go off for a couple hours and smoke behind the bins or in the park or something like that. And it just became, I won't say a habit, because... I could smoke it one day and not smoke it the next day. But that became my drug of choice more than weed. I felt like I could function more on crack than weed. So um, I was just a mess. I was a mess for a few years. Um, no direction. Um, I went to a third college, got kicked out. I didn't even get kicked out of the third one. I just left after like two weeks. One of my close friends died on a bike and I was just too depressed and I was smoking shit and I just thought, you know what? I'm just this ain't this um, normal life ain't for me. So I just started um, robbing people, you know, petty robberies, taking their phones, robbing people for their weed, you know, calling them up saying I want some weed, bring an ounce and they're robbing them. And then I got a um, eight millimeter 
my first gun that was mine and then that just took things to another level because now I'm, I feel like John Wayne do you know what I mean and so yeah just just my name started to come around now that people started to know about me in different areas um so yeah I just I, I was doing a lot of stupid things violent um I wouldn't say totally financially motivated um it sounds good to say so yeah it was all for the money but when I looked deeper it wasn't just about the money it was more about destruction and power do you know what I mean and just being out of control I wasn't focused on the money the money just was um, a byproduct of what I was doing so I caught got myself in a situation um, where somebody died by accident, um, but it, you know, people thought I did it like it was deliberate. It wasn't. So I went on a run. I went on a run for a little while. I was in America, and then I went to Nigeria. Um, it took a couple months before the trail kind of led to police investigating about me, and by now they've. They're um, stressing out my mum, you know, turning up at her house, raiding the house, just being parked outside the house, you know, causing her a lot of stress. And my mum's not, she's not really built like that. She's not like my friend's mums who would just tell them to fuck off. You know what I mean? My mum was, just didn't know what to do. So she just, you know, she just told me what was going on. I said to her, do you know what, yeah? I think I could fight this case, you know. I don't if if everything if all the um, evidence comes out, I feel like I won't get done for murder. So I want to come back. I want to come back to UK, and you know I was living in Nigeria at the time, and I just missed home. Do you know what I mean? I just missed home. I, I wasn't I wasn't adjusting to my new life. Because I was literally supposed to be gone forever. So I said, no, I'm coming back. And, um, how long did you spend... Oh, sorry. Yeah, how long did you spend in, in America and Nigeria, respectively? Um, I spent a couple months in America and a couple months in Nigeria. So, yeah. Yeah, that's about, about four months. All together. Yeah, about four or five months, yeah. The whole of the summer I was gone remember that the whole of the summer and it was just started um autumn so yeah um we arranged for me to come back with um solicitor came back um they gave me a day's grace and then i had to go police station um i gave them a no comment interview and they released me so I was free, so you can imagine what that did for my um, ego and um, reputation, because everybody knew that I was wanted for murder, I've come on, I've been arrested and I've been released on bail, I had to sign on at a police station every week, but you know, I felt like uh, they didn't have enough of me, so I was... I think I was 19 years old. I still had my gun. 
got my gun back and I just was just on some, you know what I mean, just smoking, crack, and robbing. I was just on some shit. Um, a year later, well, just under a year later, I got charged with a murder. So, um, I was 19, it's before my 20th birthday. So that was a bit of a mad situation because um, they put me in adult jail at 19 years old. So that was strange. But, you know, that's when I first realised racial dynamics between blacks and whites where we're not always the dominant force. Because, you know, growing up in Brixton, you're in a vacuum, innit? You think that the world is yours. You feel like... You, you don't really see the power that white people have in terms of like structure and numbers and everything. But when I got to prison, High Down was a was a predominantly white man show at the time. So I could see them like information and see how they were intimidating um black prisoners. But they didn't try nothing with me. If anything, they liked me. You know, they would always say hello, even though I know they were racist. But I saw them bully. One of my biggest regrets was um, they they beat they beat up one Nigerian man, gave him a black eye, and I didn't do nothing about it. And it still haunts me to this day. You know, but in my defence, I was fresh in prison. I didn't know the lay of the land. Um, yeah, I just didn't, you know, it, just, it's, it was literally new. So I didn't really get the whole, you know what I mean? But I felt bad for the guy. And I knew it was just bullying on their part. But yeah, um, I did. I got sentenced to six years. Came out after three and a bit. And started my life again. So, like, typically, whenever there's, like, a TV show detailing jail life, there is this sort of thing that shows yeah. people... It's a, it's a common narrative to see people click up. So I was kind of wondering, like, how true is that to life? Is it... When you go to jail, is it more every man for themselves yeah. kind of thing? Or are people forced to sort of click up in terms of, like, just for safety um, reasons? Like, like, well, how does that sort of play out when you're inside? <laughs> it... it, it, it. I've seen it all. I've seen it all. I've seen it. I've seen every single di- dynamic play out. Now, I was, I was influential in the Muslim, um, Muslims becoming powerful in the prison system. I was one of the key focal points in Portland, YOY, where they, the, it was one of the. In 2003, when I got to the prison, there was under 20 Muslims going to the mosque. When I left, there was 123. And we we started a revolution. We started a revolution because we literally changed the prison system from that prison, the way things went on. We started a culture. Prior to that, it was just who you knew from the streets or 
who's from your area you tend to click up so typical dynamic yeah you're black if you're in a wing full of other white guys and you're the minority you're going to click up with the other blacks regardless of where they're from that's just a natural um thing yeah if you go out so if you're in london if you're in a london jail you're going to click up with those from your area so you'll click up with like this people from Brixton or Southwest or some occasions people from South generally when you get outside of London you click up with London <laughs> do you know what I mean you click up with London regardless of where they're from because you are now the minority even amongst other blacks that you might be in a job mm-hmm. with like Bear Birmingham lot so you'll click up with London if you go further north or to jails like there's a jail called Park in Wells, racist. If you go park, you're clicking up with whoever's black. So it just depends on the demographic you're in that would determine who you're going to click up with. But you will click up with someone. Now, with the, the Muslim dynamic, it changed everything. It changed everything because it was a force. You know, I saw it start from the beginning. It was powerful. The the the, off, the, poli- the screws didn't even know how to deal with it. And it wasn't oppressive in a sense. Yeah, there was abuse of power, but it was love. And it was love we can trust. It wasn't where you have to second guess all the time that if someone's being genuine or if someone's looking to stab you behind your back. It was just love. You come into a wing and you're Muslim, you're treated like... You've, you're treated like family straight away. Assalamu alaikum, bro. Where are you from? All right, cool. Wait there. Five minutes later, you've got shower gel, noodles, tuna, everything you need just by being Muslim. Someone can't even cough in your direction without everyone ready to fight them. Do you know what I mean? And it gave a voice to a lot of people who were vulnerable. I protected a lot of people that wouldn't have had voices before from bullies and, you know, predators because they were under my umbrella or my group's umbrella. So, yeah, I've, you know, I've seen factions emerge that in other jails where the Welsh and the Bristol boys will like team up to stand firm against the Muslims, but when it came down to it, they weren't. They didn't have the heart to go to war. Do you know what I mean? Just to clarify, uh, oh. you personally never reverted to Islam. You were born into a Muslim household, and then you practiced it throughout your life. Yeah. Yes and no. Um, I'm Yoruba, so we have a very <laughs> weird relationship with Islam and Christianity. Um, Yorubas have a very um, diverse religiously and accepting of each other's faiths. So I grew up as a, you know, supposedly as a Muslim, but I was very relaxed around Christianity. I went to Christian schools. I knew the Bible more than the Quran. 
if that makes sense. So only when I was in prison that I'm having to read more about Islam and I started to understand the religion okay. properly out of the um, context of being a Nigerian Muslim. Do you know what I mean? And a cultural Muslim. But So that's where I first learned how to pray. My first, my, one of my closest friends taught me how to pray. Um, so I learned to be a Muslim in prison. So mm. I can kind of identify with reverts, but I can also identify with born Muslims. So it's a weird um, dynamic. So Babs, anyone that's listened to you before on any platform has heard you speaking on your religion. You're very passionate about your religion and you're very proudly a Muslim. Yeah. yeah. What I would kind of like to find out is what's your perspective on on the perception of black Muslims within the... As an outsider looking in, it's always kind of felt like black Muslims are invisible or like not... It's like black people aren't the face of Islam. Um, like Not in the same way that, you know, Asians or Arabs are in the context of the UK, especially. Um, I think in the context of the whole world. Um, and obviously there were, people joke about it, but there was a time period in like the, you know, early to late noughties where I guess essentially people felt like they were under pressure to come to revert or or became came to the religion in prison so how do you think that kind of influences non-black Muslims opinion of black Muslims um, and their walk with their faith and maybe we could also touch on situations where there is a vulnerability when people are making this choice to revert um, like, you know, even the example of Malcolm X, um, you know, people look at his, his religion as empowering him and giving him a platform. But at the same time, when he became a Muslim, he was an extremely vulnerable person in prison. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. That's good. You brought up some interesting points. And um, with the prison, the prison um, situation, you're right. There were a lot of vulnerable conversions. And I'm not going to pretend that I weren't responsible for a few of them because I was a tyrant and I was using the religion as um, a cover for um, expanding my power, if I'm being totally honest. It was convenient that I was Muslim and I understood my religion it's also convenient that I was very imposing and violent. So with those um, factors, it made me a centre point wherever I went when it came to the religion. And I exerted my um, influence and power. And a lot of people aligned with me because they wanted that um, protection or um, just to feel safe. So th there were a few people that I questioned their um, their sincerity, you know, and I made it hard for them because I would give them questionnaires on what they knew, you know, and I would always expect them to have evolved with their knowledge. But um, what happened is that the beast got too big to control. It became too big.
big for me to regulate or for others to regulate. And it was like, it got to the point where we couldn't even question people on their religion no more because it was just, you know what I mean? It was it was far beyond our reach after a while. But I did see a lot of people who I don't believe they were sincere and time proved me to be right. But there were people who also didn't think were sincere and they became sincere. Do you know what I mean? So, and I, there's people who I thought were sincere, and they're no longer Muslim. So it's, you know, things change, people change, times change. Um, but it's, you know, religion's a good coping mechanism in prison, you know. At the time, that that's changed, because the last time I went to prison, it was a totally different dynamic. Totally different dynamic. So that Muslim card won't save you no more where back in the day it was, you know, it was, it was like a form of protection. Now it don't matter. Okay, now back to the, um, being a black Muslim. It's interesting because as a Nigerian Muslim, it was hard for me to have an inferiority complex when it came to the religion, especially with like the Pakistanis. And the Arabs. Why? Because the first people I knew were Muslims growing up were black Muslims. My grandma, my, all I remember, my grandma would always be speaking Arabic and saying Arabic words. And I was very familiar with like the identity of a black Nigerian Muslim before. I even come across an Arab Muslim or Asian Muslim. So for me, I did, their Islam didn't matter to me because I knew that I'm coming from a culture where Islam is a strong um, part of my culture, and especially my family. I come from a, um, an Islamic dynasty. You know, my family built the first mosque in Lagos. And they were awarded the title of Bey by the Ottoman Empire. So my family is one of the premier Islamic families in West Africa. So I've always been aware of the strong um, identity towards Islam. I just didn't understand the religion on a micro level, if that makes sense. But... So coming into the, um, you know, the, the community, because before I went to prison, Asian people didn't exist to me. Somali people didn't exist to me. Arab people didn't exist to me because I was on the roads. And they, these lot were in my, they were in my circles. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So only, because, only as a Muslim... The, the my vision is becoming different. I'm now noticing women in hijabs, where before oh, these yeah, people okay. were invisible to me. If that does that make sense, you know, like they just weren't visible to. Me. I just didn't notice them. Now I'm noticing other people. So where a Muslim man might walk past me in the street and I don't look at him twice, now I'm looking at him and and saying hello to him or salaming him. So I came I came out with this. Kumbaya, um, 
you know, kumbaya understanding of Islam, that we're all one and we're all Muslim. So I sacrificed my um, my blackness for Islam initially because I believe that we're all equal, we're all one. Then I started to notice things after a while. It's nothing like may nothing overt, but it's just very covert bit by bit you start to notice that this we're not brothers. We're not brothers like that. Do you know what I mean? Like you lot don't love us like that. You don't care about us like that. So I did notice the the differences in how we were treated by other races as Muslims. But for me, I had my heritage to hold on to. I never had an inferiority complex, but a lot of black Muslim reverts do. They become Arabs. Do you know what I mean? The way they behave, the way they speak, they've literally left white Jesus for white Muhammad. And it's sad because I see a lot of them that... I remember a situation in jail where um, I was giving... I was, I was talking and giving, you know some knowledge to someone. And, you know, I, I learned quite a lot in a short space of time because I just spent my time reading, reading, reading. And I've got a good memory, so I, you know, I can memorise things. So I was telling someone something and he was like, no, no, no. Like, he was trying to refute me. I'm like, look, I'm telling you the truth. This is what it is. Do you know what he done? He grabbed the first Asian boy that walked past... <laughs> for verification and I'm like what are you asking him for you know what I mean like what are you asking him for because he automatically assumed that this person would know more than me because he's Asian and I explained I said look Islam's been in Nigeria centuries before it was in Pakistan mm-hmm. do you know what I mean like what, what's, 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 what's wrong with you bruv with a lot of black Muslims, they 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 lost their cultural identity, but it happens. There's racism from the others, definitely, but it's just how you know when you're armed with knowledge of who you are, it's different. For example, you never really hear West Africans in the UK complaining about the racism from. Asians and Arabs. Why? Because they've got their own mosques. You know, my first mosque that I remember is a Nigerian mosque in Oakett Road. That's where I used to go with my dad. Do you know what I mean? So my first experiences as a Muslim were with black people, Nigerian. So when you came out of prison, how easy was it for you to adjust to life outside did you feel like society gave you a fair chance to reinsert yourself or did you find yourself thinking that yeah it'll be very very easy like a snap of the finger for you to end up going back inside okay all right so when i came out i was i was very very um i was very i was very um how can i say i was a dangerous person i was very dangerous because before i went prison i was uncontrolled, um, misdirected anger, 
you know what I mean? Where now I'm out of prison, but I'm just cold, calculated, and I felt like I've proved myself in the in the testing ground with most of the baddest kids my age, most of the baddest people in London. I think I've I came across majority of them during my period in jail, and I held my own. I felt respected. I felt powerful. I felt strong, but I didn't want to conform to um, society. So it was difficult because um, I remember my mum. My mum, you know, she wanted some sort of like family gathering and party kind of thing for me to come out, and I was like, I don't want nothing like that. I'm not a hero, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because I'm thinking I might be going back in at any time, so I don't want to even that set myself set anyone's hopes up high do you know what I mean mm. so um, when I came out I didn't adjust to society straight away because by timing three of my friends who I was in prison with all on separate cases were all released in from jail within Bumps and weeks from my release. Do you know what I mean? So, my closest friend, he was released two months before me. And then one of my other friends was released a couple of weeks before me. And then my other friend was released a couple of weeks after me. So, that kind of helped because we were just, we create, we just formed our little just us lot, us four, meaning they'll pick me up and we would just literally be in our own world and then we got back into robberies but now the robberies were, it wasn't just petty robberies, now it's real organised robbing drug dealers, kicking down their door, tying them up. Do you know what I mean? It was like just just a level above what I was doing before. Do you know what I mean? Like now I've got a Glock. Do you know what I mean? I ain't got no eight millimeter no more. I've got a Glock. There's a four five about. You know what I mean? It just felt like I'm a. This is it. This is what I'm doing, and I didn't care. I knew that I was capable of um, extreme violence, but not not wanton violence, if that made sense. Um, I got harsh realities when I would see my siblings, you know, before I went to prison. My youngest sister was in secondary school and now she's graduating from uni. You know what I mean? So that was those are the harsh realities that I had to face that people have progressed in their life and I haven't. You know, um, so yeah, it was it was difficult. I remember like I couldn't even cross the road properly. I couldn't cross the road. I was just I was just out of sync with because prison carries like a frequency. You got you you're operating on a vibration that's different to the streets. People can sense it because you're just out of sync. But because me and my friends were all on the same 
frequency and we we spent a lot of time with each other. We were in a bubble for at least two and a half years before one by one they all slipped off and went back into prison. Okay, sorry to hear that. Um, was there anything that sort of like gave you another option? Was there any sort of like positive? Um, I don't know any sort of something like some something any sort of offer opportunity that came to you that sort of like that you thought that okay maybe I can make a go of this and I can be stable and I can stay out was there nothing like that in uh, in your peripheral at the time I the only thing that I was interested in was gym so while I was in prison I was a two-time powerlifting champion so that was the only thing that I felt like I could do while maintaining my identity because I'm not going to pretend I, I I enjoyed the trappings of who I was do you know what I mean I enjoyed being me and I didn't want to stop being me I didn't ever want to have a menial job and just be nobody you know what I mean so um, I don't think I gave myself the chance to go out there and um to start from scratch in a new professional career I just couldn't I just wanted to explore how far I could go on these streets you know with with no limitations but there was still that part where I thought all right let me do something positive so that my mum and my family can look at me like I'm a responsible person at the same time so I think Jim was the um, the balance so I, I've done a gym instructor course and I started working in the gym part time for a little while how long was it between this point and when you married the mother of your children it was about because um, I went back into prison in 2010 um, so when I came out again um, so I came out of prison 2006 and I went back in 2010. So, and then I got married in 2000. And no, I came, I went back in prison 2009. and came out 2010. And then I got married 2010 when I came out. And um, yeah, yeah. So I got married not long after I came out the second time. And I'm writing, I'm writing the fact that you had a child before you got married as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a child in 2007. So how did the obligations of fatherhood come into your lifestyle and your choices that, at that time? I was happy, yeah. But it didn't stop anything I was doing on the streets. Do you know what I mean? I was happy. I was very, very happy. And I was excited. But it didn't didn't change my mindset. How do you look back on your marriage now that you're out of it? Is it something that you appreciate more? Or is it something that, you know, you wish you'd done differently? Like, how do you feel about it now that you're out of that space? Okay, that marriage was um, was the equivalent of standing in front of a mirror naked, warts and all. It exposed me. Do you know what I mean? That exposed me for who I really was not who I thought I was. And for the good, because it was necessary. Um, Previous relationships, I just had to turn up. You know what I mean? That was it. (laughs) That was my only requirement. Just be there, be around. 
where this was the first time where um, I'm being challenged to, you know, I'm being prompted to do more than just be there. And I think because growing up in a single parent household, I hadn't witnessed the dynamics of a real relationship, the ups and downs, the, you know what I mean, just the things that a man is supposed to do. I didn't know because I based my masculinity on my level of violence. Do you know what I mean? And what what I was doing on the streets. So I never ever felt like my masculinity was being questioned. But now I'm in a marriage and it's being questioned because I'm being compared to her father who is doing this, who's done that, and who's done this, and who's done that. And these are things that are good things. Mm. These are things that a man should be doing. But I feel like in our community, especially with when we're growing up, we're not we're not expected much in our relationships. Do you know what I mean? And for those listening, my, my, my first wife, she's um, she's Asian. So she's from a totally different culture. Do you know what I mean? So I felt like I learned a lot from that situation because my, my first daughter, she's her mum's Jamaican. So that relationship dynamic was different. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, we weren't married, but I've, I've had relationships with most, majority of my relationships with black girls. So there was more understanding for my limitations, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. There was way more understanding from my limitations. Where with the Asian girl, my limitations were my whip. My, they were my. That was my whip. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That was my. <laughs> whip. That was the whip on my back. That was the whip on my back. And you know, for years I blamed her for not understanding my struggle, and and I'm over it because now when I look back, you know, she was right with everything. She was right. I wasn't ready. I wasn't man enough. I wasn't strong enough to change and um, do the right thing at all times. And a lot of it, I just didn't know. I didn't know. So it was a lot of trial and error because there was no examples for me. You know, that was mm. there was no example for me to to go by. There was a, there wasn't a guidebook. I was just winging it and I was just imposing what I thought was the right thing to do, but yet making excuses because um, it was it was a weird dynamic because obviously it's an Islamic marriage, Muslim, but at the same time, I'm still a street man. I'm still on the streets. I'm still a gangster. I'm still selling drugs. I'm still robbing people. So it was a, do you know what I mean? It was a weird dynamic, but... Um, we divorced. We divorced after six years. Um, three children. Um, ended up homeless. You know, um, there was a rough period of my life because um, I had nowhere to go. You know, I've exhausted all my options. Um, I just um, beaten um, a gun charge. So. 
I was like leaning away from the streets because police were just, you know, I knew that my luck was running out and my, my robbery team were in prison. So the people that I used to be with and execute my robberies with and my moves, they were gone. So I was alone. And yeah, there was a few other, you know, people that I was linking up with to do things with, but it's like they weren't, that weren't my lineup. They they weren't my original lineup. With my lineup, I could trust them. I knew what to expect. I know that if they find something, they're not going to, they're going to like declare it. Do you know what I mean? They're not going to run away and leave me. They're not going to snitch on me. Do you know what I mean? There was just that trust mm-hmm. factor with my my main four people. And now, I was, you know, I was alone. So just, just so I, I didn't really do much for a little while. Um, I wasn't working. Um, yeah, just just not, I was just a shell of, of a man at that period of time and ended up homeless. And so that was a pivotal moment for me. That's, that was when I hit rock bottom, you know. Um, I was in supported housing. In, with no no real money, you know, just doing little bits and pieces here and there, but nothing tangible, or no plan. Um, four kids, you know, and just times running out. I'm starting to look at. I'm not. I'm starting to not like myself, you know. The the myth. The myth had is, is over you know that that who I thought I was I wasn't because it didn't matter you know all the crimes that I did in the past all the respect that people had for me or whatever it didn't mean anything because it's smoke and mirrors because at the end of the day I'm here in a box room with like a tenor to my name and I'm just here, do you know what I mean? Like, without a plan. And that's when I just decided to just make a change, you know. I had to, like, really look into myself and take accountability for my situation. And that was a turning point in my life. Would you say that sort of rock bottom was the point that really changed everything? Because obviously when people see you now, they see the dad on social media they hear you on three shots and you know the stories are like real but at the same time they're very you know that there's a there's a there's a jovial nature to the way you tell them there's a you know that freedom that feeling of of well you seem like you're just in a much more positive happier space and from what i've heard you um, say and um, discuss and describe you seem to be through your career being a, a, at least partially the kind of the the figure in a lot of young black men's lives that you would have wished you probably would have wished you could have had um so would you say that was the real turning point for you 100 percent. it was part of it that along with my religious teachings because at this moment in time i was leaning towards a more um afrocentric understanding of islam do you know what I mean? So um, 
I started to learn more about our Hebrew origins and how it applies to us as Muslims. And it's all practical stuff. It wasn't just pie in the sky stuff. It was literally you have to take control of your life. You have to take control of your destiny. You could sit there all day long and say you want God to help you, but you have to be disciplined and refrain from certain things. And I just started to activate more my spiritual being. Do you know what I mean? Alongside with um, a lot of unlearning. So I had to be comfortable with the fact that I'm not going to live that gangster life no more. And that isn't my whole identity. Do you know what I mean? Because I think, you you know, you wear a mask for so long and you think that's your only identity. But I, I know that there's, there was so much more to me than just the violent criminal that a lot of people knew. So um, I just, you know, I'm, I just kind of just, just put my head down, stayed away from everybody. I was in Hackney. I was living in Hackney alone. Um, I was not meeting with any of my friends. Well, my friends were in prison, so <laughs> that was, you know, I don't want to say it was a blessing in disguise, but they were gone. So I wasn't really with no one apart from um, a few um, uncles that I was doing some different type of business with, which was just kind of keeping me afloat. So, yeah, that, 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 I was spending a lot of time in shisha bars, just alone or with, with Asian uncles. And it was just a different, different um, experience. You know what I mean? I was in a different world. And, one thing led to another I got a job I decided I, I need to work so I got a job um, about four years ago no it was three years ago and that job led to me um, being invited to House of Commons and me also being invited to Downing Street and yeah so those have been pivotal um, moments in my life the transition you know the moment I made the transition things have been moving at light speed you know doors just fly open you know um, and I, I believe that's because of my mindset changing but also um, a realignment of my spiritual belief and practices um, I've also got custody of three of my kids so um, in 2018, like three of my daughters came to live with me. Three, the, the three from the marriage with the Pakistani woman, and yeah, it's been um, they've been a blessing, um, you know. So te- I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a single dad because um, I'm with someone. She's got a son for me, but she doesn't live with me, so. It's just me and the girls living together, but I have a partner who comes and helps out. So I, I don't know if that makes me a single father, but I've got so I'm, I'm primary care of three of my children, and they don't live with their mother. So yeah, life's just been up and up and onwards. You know what I mean? That's really good to hear, man. So I guess in closing, 
I want to ask you two things. Yeah. Um, one, what does fatherhood mean to you? Um, how, what do you think it brings out of you? Um, how do you approach it? That kind of thing. And then also, what would you? What kind of advice would you give to someone that you know probably that's been in that place that you were in, that's had that you know that tough upbringing, and you know turned mm-hmm. to doing things that you know they probably shouldn't have been doing. How yeah. would you sort of advise them to sort of come into the space that you're yeah. in now, that, yeah. that much more positive space, that much more yeah. um, stable space? Okay. Um, first question, fatherhood, um, it's a learning experience. It's a humbling experience. Um, it's a powerful experience. I wish more men become more present, you know, in the moment. Um, I'm blessed that I've had the opportunity to be the type of father to my children that I've always wanted because um, when you don't live with your children you, you, you don't really get the full experience and you think you know your children but you don't know them until you live with them and even living with them you have to be present in the moment with them so I'm still learning on the job Um I'm still learning on the job. I've learned that um, as men, we have certain traits that actually are very beneficial to child rearing, you know. And I think a lot of men underestimate their abilities as parents because you know the um, the nurturing period gets most of the attention and that's you know the first the early years where the mums usually tend to be at the forefront of parenting so I think a lot of women overestimate their abilities as parents and a lot of men underestimate their abilities because of the first few years where they weren't as um, integral to the upbringing but I feel like men should just hang in there because you know, once the children's cognitive abilities develop more and more, this is your time. This is your time because I feel like we've we've got better long term um, planning and solutions for our children, and a lot of the time we don't get the chance to implement them. So yeah, um, it's been empowering being a father, you know, to three daughters, where I'm literally the primary decision maker for everything it's very empowering and yeah for um the second question regarding um people with similar um experiences to me growing up um it's difficult because i don't you know it depends how it's affected you you know not everyone has resilience but I would say play the hand that you was dealt with. You, you, you know, with not not to belittle any any pain that anyone's gone through, but you can't change the past. Whatever's happened has happened. You only have the ability to change your future. Do you know what I mean? So you either wallow in the past and you know um, blame your circumstances blame your parents blame your area blame your school teachers blame everything 
blame God, blame everything, it's not going to make a difference. But you can channel that pain and use it as a um, motivating tool to achieve and better yourself. You could use your pain to help others who are going through similar situations that you've been through. You can help them, you can guide them. Um, Don't let your past define you. Don't be defined by your past or your past actions. Um, And don't be afraid to take off that mask. Don't be afraid to take off that mask. Even if you're, you know, the, the, the worst gangster in the world, there's going to be a time when you need to take off that mask. And don't be afraid to do so. And you'll find that you probably get more respect and love when you take it off than you would when you keep it on. Um, don't expect anything to happen overnight just because, you know, I'm, I've been to Downing Street and number 10 doesn't mean you're going to do the same and don't let that be a motivating um, tool for you. What should be the motivating tool for you is to better yourself and to have self-respect for yourself and for others around you. And, um, yeah, just learn who you are. Learn who you are outside of your bubble, the bubble of the streets, the bubble of your environment. You know, and know that you're much more than what people think of you. And as a man think of, you become. So visualise who you want to be. Look at, think of the best version of you. The best version of yourself. What is he wearing? Where is he? Where is he living? What is he driving? What watches he got on? How is he walking? How does he talk? What shoes is he wearing? Visualise him. Visualise him. Visualise him. Visualise him. And then... Start taking steps to become that person. And if you can't take steps, crawl towards that vision. Whichever, Whatever you do, just have a vision and aim towards it. If you don't have a vision, you're lost. You're a ship in the middle of the sea with no direction. You'll get lost. So always have a vision. And use that revision to propel you to greatness. Dope, that's some really good words to end off with. So I just want to firstly thank you for coming on. No problem. Pleasure, bro. And, you know, is there anything that you um, want to plug? Like, do you want to plug your socials? Anything like that? Yeah. Um, socials, Master Sadiq on um, Twitter and Instagram. So that's Master underscore Sadiq with S-I-double-D-I-Q um, look up the AP Foundation AP Foundation um, I'm a mentor for them look up there's going to be some interesting developments in the next few months so hopefully um, you'll see some nationwide projects emerging from that pro- um, foundation um, and yeah, just look out for me. Um, I'll be producing some content very soon. So 
keep you lot posted just get me on the socials dope dope so yeah once again thank you man thanks for coming on thanks for being so open alright bro thanks for having me it was a pleasure this is the A to and I'll see you next time <laughs>